Well, the new year, if you've already done so, is the time when we set goals in our life. We look back on the past year and we say, you know what, I could probably improve a little bit here, here, there. And this new year, what I'm going to do is I'm going to change that. So whether that is to be a more patient parent or read the Bible through the year this time, I'm really going to do it to not get stuck in Leviticus. Or maybe lose some extra pounds around the waist to get into better shape. Or maybe I maybe I have a better work-life balance. Or go get into the college of your dreams. Well, the real question is, what is it going to take for you or your New Year's goals to actually come to fruition? Before I answer that, I want to share with you a little bit of a small story from the beginning of our marriage with Anna. We got married many, many years ago. 2014. And so, before we got married, I was a different person. I used to drink Coca-Cola, soft drinks, and juices with a lot of sugar. But when I married my wife, I quickly converted to be a water drinker only. And that is all that we drink at home. But obviously, you cannot drink tap water that comes out of the faucet. And so, I quickly ordered a water filter on Amazon. Which arrived on Saturday night, and I told myself, I will install it Sunday night because I gotta get ready for Sunday morning, and it will be a swift installation so that we're ready to start our week properly. So the, the key word here was swift, but it was not so swift. It wasn't quick. In my mind, I decided it's gonna take 30 minutes, and so at 9 p.m. after we put all the kids into that, so we started the swift installation. Well, two hours later, I was finishing it up into the lens that was involved. And this time, would you believe it, I actually used directions. Now, if I only had someone who had already done this in their home before, who could have come over and walked me through the process of how to put all the wires together and where to stick what in and how to connect it to my faucet and all the tubes that I would need, it would have taken much faster. See, what I really needed was guidance and direction. And this is what many of us need when we're coming into the new year and setting goals for ourselves, is we need somebody who has already walked that path that we desire to walk. We need someone to guide us so that those goals will actually be achieved. This is a very basic principle of life. When you are in college, you go to your counselor to make sure that you get the right guidance to take the right classes so that you can graduate on time. If you enjoy sports, you get a coach who can help you have a better swing in golf or a better shot in basketball. In your work, to move up into your company, move up in your company, you're, you're given a supervisor, someone who's already been there, who watches over you, who guides you into the next step of your life. If you sit down and think about it, we pretty much need guidance in all our life. And are we so grateful for our parents who have given us that guidance as we were growing up? I look at my kids, they need guidance for them to get their spoon from their plate into their mouth. They need guidance on how to talk with one another without fighting and how to share their toys. What happens when we don't have guidance in life? Well, the four years that's supposed to take for college takes six to seven years. The under-sink filter system takes two hours instead, instead of, 30 of 30 minutes. minutes. And the children that you might at times try to parent come out to be those who are out of control. And so people see guidance in many places, but I want to turn your attention this morning to the place where all of us really need a lot of guidance, where a lot of us need a lot of help. And, and obviously, it is not necessarily in the physical elements of our life, but more so in the spiritual. And this is where in John 10, John displays to us Jesus, who is the good shepherd. As much as we are physical beings, a lot of what we need is really internal. Satisfaction, happiness, fulfillment, and purpose are all internal. The question you have to ask yourself is why are you setting the goal that you're setting in your life, the external thing that you want to achieve? Well, it's because you want to experience the internal satisfaction, joy, and peace that comes with attaining that goal. If we're not satisfied spiritually, nothing physical will be able to do that. And so John presents to us Jesus as the good shepherd, the one who can truly guide us to the places that we need to be. 
And as we already read in Psalm 23, he guides us to the green pastures and the calm waters. He's the one who guides us in our marriage, our parenting, our workplace, in our friendships. He guides us through the mountaintops and more often when we need it, he guides us in the valleys going before us and alongside of us. He is really, we could say, the one who is our life coach for all areas of life. This chapter, John 10, is is very much an echo of some of our favorite psalms, which is Psalm 23. And in Psalm 23, which we already read, the very first line says this, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It's one of my favorite phrases in the Bible. And the idea there is that when God is your shepherd, you are satisfied. You're a person who shall not want. You have all that you need because all that you need is actually found in Christ himself. God fills up our bucket so much that not only is it full, but it is overflowing. And here we find in John 10, two of the seven I am statements. In verse 7, we read, Jesus said, I am the door of the sheep. And in verse 11, another I am statement, I am the good shepherd. Through both of these, what Jesus is actually telling us is one and the same thing. As the door, he is the entrance to life. He gives life. And as a shepherd, he continually guides you so that you continue to sustain that life that he gives you. And although, as I was preparing, there are so many things that we can study in John 10, it is extremely deep. I want us to focus on one phrase in verse 10. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. We've been studying this past month, Christ who was born. And we looked at the various aspects of Jesus so far. He was born to reveal the Father. That was John 1. In John 2, we studied he was born to restore worship. In John 3, he was born to save. Then in John 13, he was born to die. In John 8, born to give life. And today, born to give Abundant life. Interestingly, Jesus says, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. And so I want to pause and ask, before we get into our text this morning, are you experiencing this abundant life as you are entering the new year? Why is it at times I thought to myself that I and not experiencing this wonderful reality of having this abundant life that Christ came to give. And I mean, in short, a first response might be probably sin in my life. But the question is, what kind of sin? What specifically could be in the way? There could be many things, but I believe that the greatest killer of life in Christ is self-sufficiency. It's finding life in ourselves or trying to fix things in ourselves or by ourselves, that only can be fixed and done by Christ himself. Instead of leaning on him, we lean on our own understanding and abilities. Instead of experiencing life that comes from the one who is the source of all life, we try to do it on our own. But friends, we're not sufficient on ourselves. Christ is only enough for us. And so let us think on this idea together. Jesus, the good shepherd, how abundant life works in God's Economy. So how does abundant life work in God's world, in God's economy? What is the abundant life that Jesus is speaking about here? First, we're going to look at the context, the setting in which Jesus brings this up. Then we're going to define, secondly, what abundant life is. And lastly, we're going to see how this abundant life fleshes out in our own life. And so let's look at the context of abundant life. Before we dive into chapter 10, we want to see what is going on in the previous and post context. And so as we're beginning, Jesus, we got to ask the question, who is Jesus speaking to at this moment? They're quotes, truly I say to you, he does not enter the sheepfold. We see here that Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. In John chapter 9, Jesus heals a man who was born blind. And the Pharisees asked a question in chapter 40 of verse 9. They heard these things and said, are we also blind? (laughs) Well, Jesus said, you're not physically blind, but you're spiritually blind. If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt 
remains. And in John 11, we see a second miracle. Not only did Jesus heal a blind man, but in John 11, Jesus raises a dead man from the grave whose name is Lazarus. So Jesus is a shepherd who heals and who helps. And in this illustration, we see that it is an illustration. Jesus says it's a figure of speech that he uses with the Pharisees, but they do not understand. And so here Jesus is addressing the Pharisees who he is comparing them to thieves and robbers. They were so upset that the man born blind was healed on the Sabbath day. And Jesus is going to come in and say, you know what? There is a good shepherd, one who's not upset that people get healed, one who's not irritated, but one who loves people. And this contrast between Jesus and the religious leaders is where our chapter begins. And so let's look at how are the bad shepherds described. How are the, the, how are the Pharisees described? We see a list. In the be, beginning of verse 1, we read, Truly I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold, that's the very first thing that we notice about them. They don't enter the sheepfold, but they climb in another way. So their entrance is wrong. They don't enter the right way. In verses 8 and 10, Jesus reiterates this. He calls them thieves and robbers. In verse 8, all who come before me, a very bold claim, all who come before me are thieves and robbers. And again, in verse 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, a reference to Satan himself. But this is not new. Shepherds who didn't do what they were supposed to do is not new news to Jesus. This already happened in the book of Jeremiah and the Old Testament, also in Zechariah, we read God saying to the leaders of Israel, woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered, his right eye utterly blinded. So in the context of the New Testament, we see that the Pharisees were following the same bad shepherd model as in the Old Testament. They were interested in only protecting and providing for themselves, the very antithesis of what a shepherd would do. A shepherd would protect and provide for the sheep. We see in Luke 16, the Pharisees were covetous. We see that the Pharisees, instead of taking burdens off of people, taking burdens off of the sheep, they would put burdens on the people. They would tell people to live in a certain way and to tithe from all these different things, telling them this is what it looks like to follow the Lord, giving them a list of rules. They even took advantage of poor widows. They turned God's temple into a den of thieves. And ultimately, they plotted to kill the good shepherd, Jesus, so that Rome would not take away their privileges. These are the leaders who are currently involved in leading God's people. We would say the blind leading the blind. Jesus heals the blind man to show the Pharisees that they themselves are blind spiritually and need guidance. But how is Jesus described in our passage? Completely opposite. Jesus describes himself in verse 11, as if you look with me, it says, I am the good shepherd. And in verses 1 through 6, Jesus describes what the good shepherd does. But Jesus is the true and best shepherd. He's the fulfillment of God leading his people. As we even studied last week, God led his people by a pillar of fire, a pillar of cloud. He led them by the law, by the prophets. But they never had a personal leader. They never had God embodied, incarnate leading them. And that is who Jesus is. He is the good shepherd. He is different than any other leader. You know, Sometimes when we think of shepherds and we see a picture of a shepherd, or rather on a portrait or watching a movie, shepherd's work looks really simple. It looks like he's just hanging out in the, in the, green, um, in the green fields, just reading a theology book, talking to God. Hey, little sheep, they're just bouncing around, eating the grass. Then he just takes them all, brings them down to the brook, and they drink the, from the calm water. But we have a very skewed version or view of shepherding in our modern society. It actually was a very hard task. It was tiring and sometimes dangerous, dangerous to where we read in verse 12 that there are wolves who would come and the shepherd had to defend the sheep. 
And so Jesus says he is a good shepherd. What does it mean that he's good? It means that he's noble. He's a, he's a worthy shepherd. In other words, intrinsically good, intrinsically beautiful, intrinsically fair. It describes that which is an ideal. And it's interesting If we look at the other I am statements, we find that there is another word before the actual picture that Jesus gives, like I am the true vine, or I am the true manna that comes from heaven, or I am the true light. Speaking of like a false light or false things, it's true in comparison. Here, Jesus says he is the good shepherd. True refers to something that is temporal, something that has now appeared that wasn't there before. Good is speaking about the character of God. When Jesus says that he is the good shepherd, he's referencing something that is and has been eternal. He is a genuine antitype. He's rooted in eternity because goodness was inherent to his nature. Calling himself good is like calling himself God. That's what we see in Mark chapter 10. And so Jesus is the good shepherd. He's always been good. He's always been a shepherd. He's always been leading his people. And how do we know that he is good, that he's noble and worthy? Look at verse 2. We see here so far two characters. We have Jesus, and we, who is the good shepherd. We have the Pharisees who are thieves and robbers. And now we have a third character on the scene. In verse 2, or verse 3, actually, the gatekeeper. So how do we know that Jesus is good? He enters by the door. He enters in the right way, and guess who opens the door? To him, the gatekeeper opens. That's the Father. So Jesus is the good shepherd. He enters by the door. In verse 4, he goes before them. The sheep follow him. Why? They know his voice. He is a good shepherd because he comes to give life in verse 10 and give it abundantly. He is a good shepherd because he guards the sheep. He is a good shepherd because he's going to even lay down his life for the sheep so that they may have life. This is the context in which we get this understanding of abundant life, this image of a shepherd, good shepherds, bad shepherds. Jesus is the good shepherd. Now, as we think about just these first few verses, I want us to think about this this fact or ponder on this reality. There's always a fight for our soul. There's a fight for life, for vigor. You know, the thief, the father of lies, comes to seek to kill and destroy, to rob us of joy, to move us from the path of life, to confuse us so we don't hear the shepherd's voice. But Jesus, as the good shepherd, he goes before And so now that we've seen the context, let's focus on what is the definition of abundant life? The definition of abundant life. When we think of abundant life, we often hear abundant life used in terms of material possessions. To have an abundant life means that you're going to have drive that nice new Mercedes, you're going to be able to buy that uh, iClear home in Castor Valley Hills, you're going to be able to make more than a six-figure salary. God is going to bless you, and He's going to bless you richly. You're going to have this abundant life, overflowing, never-ending. I mean, cash in your bank account that you never even imagined that you could have. Abundant life. This is what is often even used here. This verse is used when it comes down to trying to get people into Christianity and people who are preaching from the pulpit saying that you can have this kind of physical goodness if you come to Christ, because Christ himself said, you're going to have life and have it abundantly. But what does Jesus mean when he says the word life? What is he referring to? Now, we're not saying that possessions and money are evil and bad inherently in themselves. They're not. We see some of the, the fathers of the faith were extremely rich themselves, like Abraham and Job. But Jesus is talking about life that only he can give, nothing that money can buy, and nothing that possessions will ever make you feel. And so, the way that this abundant life begins is through a door. Jesus says in verse 7, I am the door of the sheep. All of us walk through a door, the door separated the outside from the sanctuary here this morning. 
A door separates two rooms and two locations. And Jesus, speaking in a religious sense, is saying that he is the door to eternal life. A door or gate is a common metaphor or way to use to enter into religion. So there's people who will say you can enter by certain ways. You can enter by good works. You can enter by being a good person. Jesus says, I am the door of the sheep. What he's saying is that he is the only way to true and eternal life. He is only one source of knowledge of God, one fount of spiritual nourishment, one basis for spiritual security, Jesus alone. Similar to John 14, 6. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And how interesting it is that people seek a door in the form of a person or a human to fix all of their needs, political and humanistic saviors. And throughout history, we've had so many of them, people putting all their hope into a person who's going to open a new reality for them. But only too late to realize that those leaders confiscate personal property. They come to steal. They ruthlessly trample human life underfoot. They only kill, and they savage all that is valuable. They destroy. The whole gospel of John, and the purpose of it in John 20, we know that believing in Jesus, you may have life in his name. So John 20 ends that says that you will have life, 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 keyword life in Jesus' name. And then John 1, verse 4, the book opens the same way. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So what is life? I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. What does Jesus mean by life? Well, we have some comparisons as we're looking through this gospel. Life is equal and equates to light. Death equates to darkness. It's interesting that the last time the word life is used is actually in John 8, the passage we studied last week. In John 8, verse 12, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And throughout the Gospel of John, life is spoken of in regards to eternal life. So if you Google or search within John life, you're going to see eternal life throughout the whole book because there is no life apart from eternal life, which is not time, but it is a state of life that only God can give. And so, in John 3.15, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So, this is a state, a new way of living. We also see that what life looks like in John 4, that those who have life are satisfied. Whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So, eternal life satisfies the person. In John 5, 24, the Father has life in Himself, and so now the Father grants Christ to have life, and then Christ gives us life. In John 6, we see again this idea of life. The bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives what? He gives life to the world. He is the bread of life. He sustains. Three out of the seven I am statements include life. He's the resurrection and the life. He is the bread of life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. It's all about life, life in Christ, robust, immaterial life. And so what Jesus is speaking about when he says life and throughout all these verses, he's referring to the inner person. The word life here is Zoe. Some of you might have friends who've named their kids Zoe, or some of you have named your child Zoe. Zoe means inner life or higher life, it's used 35 times in John. But guess which word is never used in the Gospel of John that also refers to life? The word bios, which actually speaks of the outer manifestation of life. And so, what John is saying is that true life is this inner and higher life, not the outer manifestation of life, that is bios, that speaks to possessions or things. And so, this all points to the fact that life is truly immaterial. But I'll argue with you that when your inner life, when your inner person is really alive, your outer person comes to life. And there's natural things that follow when you are following Christ and have life. And so, when Christ says that 
they may have life. He's speaking about eternal life, which is a state. A person who has eternal life is a person who is satisfied with Christ who gives living water, sustained with Christ who is the bread of life. I just want to pause for a moment and just ask all of us, where are we seeking life this morning? Isn't it that coming new business venture that we're really excited about? Are we seeking life through our kids? That once there'll be a certain way, I will be happy. Are we seeking life in our spouse? I want them to be a certain way, and then when they do become what I want them to become, I'll truly be happy and have life. Where are we seeking life? Are we seeking life through various experiences, through travel? Are we waiting on life to come once we stop finishing work in the nine to five? Jesus said, I come that you may have life. You see, you know that you have entered through the door and you've experienced eternal life when your heart is restless until it finds rest in Him. When you are not satisfied by nibbling at the table of this world's goods. When the things of this world are not sufficient for your soul because you realize these material things cannot ever fill the immaterial void of my heart that Christ came to fill. Now, it would have been enough for Christ to say, I came, I was born, and I died, and I resurrected that they may have life. But he adds a phrase, and they may have it abundantly. It would have been enough moving from darkness to light, moving from death to life, from purposelessness to having purpose, but Christ says, I want you to experience abundant life. Going beyond what is necessary. Having something in abundance. Really what John wants all of us as the readers of this verse this morning to realize is that the gift of Jesus is life beyond our wildest dreams and imaginations. It is life that no millionaire or billionaire can buy. It is a life that no possessions will ever give. It is life that no other person will be able to transmute to you. It is life in Christ that he gives to us. It is abundance. And when I think of abundance, I often think of my kids when they, for the very rare time that they eat cereal, decide to get some. And they fill up their bowl with some milk, and then they start pouring the cereal. And the cereal doesn't stop at the rim of the bowl. They are extremely excited and they keep pouring and it overflows and it overflows and it overflows and we have to come in and sweep it and put it back up into the box. That is abundance, abundant life. It's, they, it's so much that they can't even finish it. And if I had cereal boxes that would fill my whole house, that would still not be abundance. Christ gives more than that. We would all say yes and amen to an abundant checking account. An abundant house with five extra rooms. But Jesus is speaking about the spiritual blessings. There's a study done on happiness, a very interesting study. And I love to read these kind of studies. I read books about, about business and finances. And it's very interesting to see just the different sides of how people think. There's a study done to people who said, how much more money do you think you would need for you to truly be content? And they asked people who made $50,000 a year. And those people said, well, if I made 50% more, I would truly be content and happy in my life. And they asked the family that made $100,000 a year, how much more do you need? Well, if I made 50% more, if we would make 150, I would truly be content and happy. <laughs> then they asked the family that made $200,000 a year, how much more do you need to make for you to truly be happy and content? And they said, well, if I made $300,000 a year, I'd be truly happy and content. Friends, the reality is, is this, is that nothing that we can ever buy or attain physically will ever give us that life that we need in our life. No aspirations, no possessions, no ventures. The reality is, is that most of everything that we need in our life, we already have. 
A bigger something, a nicer something, would not bring you any extra happiness. It's statistically proven. You'll be happy just for a little moment, and then you'll be, it'll become like normal once again. The one thing that Christ is, is calling us to is to experience abundant life, and that is what truly we can never have enough of. That is what truly would continue to grow your soul and to nourish your mind. Here's a quote that's also on the screen. I would like you to follow along with me from an author from a book. He said this, when Jesus completed his redemptive work on Calvary, he cried out triumphantly, it is finished. The saving work was fulfilled, completed. Nothing was omitted. And all who are recipients of that salvation are granted everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Christ. In him we have wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. His grace is sufficient for every situation. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing in him. By one offering, he has perfected us forever. We are complete in Christ. What can anyone add to that? So to possess the Lord Jesus Christ is to have every spiritual resource, all strength, wisdom, comfort, peace, joy, meaning, value, purpose, hope, and fulfillment in life now and forever is bound up in him. Christianity is an all-sufficient relationship with an all-sufficient Christ. And Christ says, that's the life I want you to have. That is the life that I would want you to experience. Before we get to the fruit of abundant life, I want to ask you, how many of your goals this next year are material and how many are immaterial? How many things that you set for yourself out to do, if you even did that, probably only a, a number of us did. I don't think everyone sets New Year's goals. It's just another year. It's another day. We move on. But as we're thinking about our life and we say, how can I better my life? Are the things that we're thinking about the material items or the immaterial? Entering the new year, my hope is that we would, as Colossians 3 says, seek the things that are above where Christ is to experience the fullness of life to experience the fullness of Christ. And so we, we saw the context of, of this chapter of abundant life. We looked at the definition. Lastly, let's look at the fruit of abundant life. The fruit of abundant life. And we're going to look at many verses from verse 1 to 18. But again, what Jesus is speaking about is the immaterial, and he desires that we would have more of that. How does this practically look like in our life? How does this practically look like in our life? And there's two ways that we see that. And we're going to go to the very first verses once again, beginning in verse 2. We'll see that he leads us. And then we'll skip ahead to verse 11 and see that he guards us. So he leads us and he guards us. So how, how do we experience this, the fruit of abundant life? Or what is that fruit? Well, when we ex experience eternal life and we have eternal life, eternal life is not just a ticket that we get to heaven and we buzz like the clipper card when you're trying to go on BART and the gate opens and we say, all right, I made it through the gates, I'm here. Eternal life is a lifestyle, it is a state, it is a new world that we have entered into, an immaterial spiritual world. And in that world, we have a shepherd. And in verse 2, and I think this is going to be encouraging for many of us, we find that Christ is that good shepherd. You know, if we could follow someone who had already walked the path into peace, comfort, joy, and satisfaction, wouldn't that be something that would bring us hope and encouragement? In this first few verses, we see the shepherd who goes before us. And first, I want us to notice how personal this is. In verse 2, he who enters the door, by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name. So eternal life is Jesus calling you by name. The eternal life is really to be known by Christ. How beautiful it is that this morning he knows you by name. He knows your struggles. He knows your setbacks. He knows what burdens you've carried this year. Maybe some things that you're bringing into the new year, your doubts, your sorrows, and your joys. He knows that. He knows, he knows your innermost being, for He created you. And He doubly owns you, not only because He created you, but now He has saved you by His blood. He knows you personally and individually. He knows the experiences that you had with your family members this past year, how hard things were. He knows that 
that's raised in your job that you were looking for, the transition to a new position did not work out. He knows how hard it is to parent children. He's been with you this whole moment. And how wonderful it is that not only he knows you by name, but you know his voice. The sheep hear his voice. He has given you the ability, the grace to know his voice. Sometimes in our life with all of the voices all around us, we might get lost in hearing the voice of Christ when he's calling us. You know, I, I, think of, uh, I think of my son now. This happened with all of my kids. But as I was going to seminary and started pastoring, I would at times be upstairs inside of my office, which first was, you know, a two-bedroom house, and one room was my office. We only had one kid. Then both the kids took the room, so the office was my bedroom. And now with even three rooms, the office was my bedroom, but now it's not anymore because it's still too loud. But I would stay upstairs at times, and then I would come down, and I'd get to the edge of the door, and I would want Anna to give me like a glass of water or something. This is when the kids didn't know I was in a house. And I would say, Anna. And now, and as always, the kids would hear my voice. And Micah nowadays, he hears my voice, and he says, Papa, <laughs> Papa, he, Papa's home. He knows my voice. We'll, we'll go to a park, and there'll be people all around. I mean, it's chaotic. You know how many kids are at a park sometimes? And it's so interesting that in the midst of all the chaos, you can call your kid by name. And hopefully if you train them, they respond. <laughs> and they say, they turn and they hear you. Yes, dad. Yes, mom. Out of all of the voices, how many intonations of the voice, how much clutter and how much noise is going on, yet the sheep hear his voice. A voice is something that is personal. When you're calling someone, on the phone to come over or you're talking to somebody who needs some kind of help, you knowing the voice of that person dictates whether you're going to hang up <laughs> or whether you're going to continue on that call. If it's the voice of parents or friends or coworkers, you'll act because you know that voice. And so likewise, it is with Jesus. We have a very personal relationship with him. This is the fruit of eternal life. This is the fruit of the abundant life. We have a shepherd who knows us and who we know. And we come, we come because we're comfortable with his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought all his own, he goes, and the sheep follow him. Why? For they know his voice, but a stranger they will not follow. Not only does he call you individually, but he also leads you out. And he also goes before you. How often we need the leading of Christ to draw us from a spiritual staleness that sometimes we find ourselves. Or draw us out of our, out of our stubbornness and out of our sin. And he draws us patiently, showing us what a better life would look like. He's calling us to live life according to his word, to forsake our sins and our vices. He's leading us to the place where we're at and meeting us there and leading us to the place that he wants us to be. Not only does he lead us, but he goes before us. I, I love this idea of Christ. Christ the trailblazer. Christ the one who has already set the path and the trajectory. I don't need to walk on my own. I don't need to figure out what the path is. He has set the path before me. It's the path of the cross. It's deny yourself, take up the cross, and follow me. But this path, although how hard it is, is when you're is a right path, and when you're on the right path, that's really all that matters. It's a path that's been trodden for us. And it is not too burdensome. And so we have a shepherd. And my question this morning is: what more can you want? I want to read another long excerpt from Jonathan Edwards. It's going to be on the screen. Follow along with me. And Jonathan Edwards wrote in one of his works these words. He said, have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? <laughs> have you, when you have thus been emptied of yourself and weaned from this vain world, found a better good? Have you had those discoveries of Christ or that sense of his excellency or sufficiency and wonderful grace that has refreshed and rejoiced your heart and revived it as if it were out of the dust and caused hope and comfort to spring forth like the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. 
Has there been light lit into your soul as the light of the sun pleasantly breaking forth out of the cloud after a dreadful storm? Or as the sweet dawning of the light of the morning after a long wandering in a dark night? Or the bright and beautiful day star arising with refreshing beams? Have you had that divine comfort that has seemed to heal your soul and put life and strength into you and given you peace after trouble and rest after labor and pain? Have you tasted that spiritual food, that bread from heaven, that is so sweet and so satisfying, so much better than the richest earthly dainties? Have you felt something of the divine comfort and peace which can't be expressed and which passes all understanding? Have you tasted that in Christ that has turned the stream of your affections that way and filled you with longings after more of him? Oh, wow, you, you read that and you just wonder, where was Edwards at every day? <laughs> where was he hanging out? What was he looking at? Who was he listening to you? Who was he following? Who was his shepherd? The depth, the depth of a man like this. And so Christ is our shepherd. That is the fruit of eternal life. But we also have a guardian in verse 11. Christ is also our guardian. In verse 11, we read, that he's the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus says that four times in this passage, and he also says that he doesn't lay it down begrudgingly, but he lays it down according to his own will. Jesus voluntarily lays down his life for his sheep. There is sacrifice in this leadership. Christ is guarding us in our life. When the, when the wolves come, when the world comes against us, when Satan comes against us, he is there to guard us. He goes to any extreme to protect us. Not like a hired hand, not like the Pharisees, not like the shepherds who came before. He is the good shepherd. He is inherently good. He's the one who steps in. And why? It's because, in verse 13, he flees the hired hand. He's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. In verse 14, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. They are my sheep. That's why Jesus lays down his life. That's why Jesus guards, because you're his own. Because he bought you with a price. And so the principalities, the powers of this world, Satan himself, death and sin cannot and will not overcome. Because he owns us and he cares for us. And so in this chapter, we have seen Jesus as the glorious one, the one who is a personal shepherd, the one who is a caring shepherd, the one who is a sacrificial shepherd, and ultimately, he's the eternal shepherd who holds us in his hand. That's later on in verses 21 and onward. You can read that when you get home. He is the one who holds us in his hand. And so as we come to a close, we see that in God's economy, abundant life is not in the possession of, of riches or in things, but in the quiet, satisfied part of the soul, we find rest at the feet of Christ. Uh, in the midst of the shepherd who leads us to green pastures and to calm waters. But, but there's something that we must do. And this is what I want to challenge you this morning. There's something that we must do that Christ calls us to. He calls us to hear him, to follow him, and to listen to him. You see, interestingly, we have a division in our English in the, New, in the New Testament, two words of to listen and obey. We see in the Old Testament, the word Shema, to listen, was to also obey. There was no listening without obeying. If you listened and you heard words of wisdom and counsel that were good or words of God, you would heed it and obey it. There's no such thing as listening but not obeying. And so this morning... Christ is calling us to hear his words of life, to hear his promise, and to follow in his steps. And so I want to ask, what are you going to do as a result of what you heard this morning about Jesus? What are you going to do as a result of what you heard this morning about Jesus? And I want to close in a story from, from 2008 when I was at the Resolved Conference. Many, some of, maybe some of you here were there as well. But one year when we were at Resolved Conference, we got this book. Um, called Uneclipsing the Sun. Uneclipsing the Sun, the whole point of this book was about how at times the moon, which is so small, 
however often this happens, I don't remember, once every how many years, right? But the moon blocks out the glory of the sun. The sun, and the sun is Christ in this, in this, in this picture and illustration. And how the moon, who that is so much insignificantly small and way smaller than the sun, can block out the glory of the sun. How could it be that this insignificant, small, little crater that floats around the earth, I'm not, sorry guys, I'm not in science, so it might not be a crater, you can tell me what it is after, but it can block out the glory of the sun. And so, in, in the book, the author, he speaks about how Christ at times is eclipsed by these smaller, lesser things. Christ is at times eclipsed in our life, His glory by the smaller, lesser things in our life. And so, as we, as we think about that and as we come to close, I want to make a few concluding thoughts. And the first one is this. If Jesus is your shepherd, then you must make His voice a priority in your life. Make His voice a priority in your life. Jesus' voice must drown out all other voices. It must take precedence in your life. The volume of Jesus' voice in relation to every book, podcast, thing that you're listening to on YouTube needs to be at a 10 instead of a 2. We must listen to Jesus' voice. Because really the danger is this. If you're not hearing Jesus' voice, then you're not necessarily following Jesus. And if you're not following Jesus, the question is, what are you following? What ideologies, what thoughts that you're presented to on a daily are you following? You could be following your own version of Jesus, and this is how people come to this idea of various Jesuses, and they pick out the version of Jesus they want, and they live by that. Some people follow their own intellect. Others follow just a moral way of living, but in none of these cases are people really following Jesus. And so Jesus must be the only direction giver in your life, the only direction giver second, If Jesus is the door to eternal life, which is accompanied with abundant life, then we must be abundantly satisfied. I mean, look at what Jesus came to do when he came on the scene. Those who were before him were thieves and robbers. And Jesus specifically said in verse 8, all who came before me were thieves and robbers. It's a very bold statement. But Jesus makes bold statements. Robbers empty you of something and you have less of that. But Jesus freed us from our sin and he gave us his righteousness. He comes to fill our life with his beauty and his glory, with spiritual blessings that overflow. He nourishes our soul and our mind. And so he is the shepherd, as what a shepherd should do, leads us to the green pastures. And so if we, he is the door, we walk into internal life and experience this. And so Jesus must be, second, the only satisfaction provider in your life, the only direction giver, the only satisfaction provider. And lastly, if Jesus is a sacrificial shepherd, as we have read here and seen multiple times, who lays down his life for a sheep, do you live a life that honors him? Third question, if Christ laid down his life for you, entering into this new year, Are you directing and seeking to live a life that honors Him? You can't really move away from the fact that Jesus didn't lay His life down for His friends. One would scarcely would even die for a good person, but what we know in the New Testament is that Christ died for us when we were enemies. When when we didn't know Him, He chose to know us. What kind of life are you living as a result of Jesus' death? And this question is not a manipulative question like, well, look at what Jesus did for you, so now we're going to force you to live this Christian life and say no to certain things. No, the Christian life is lived in this way. When you behold the glory and the beauty of Jesus, you see that it is so much greater than the things that this world offers, the things that you desire, that you would say easily in comparison, this is not a big deal. When you have a filet mignon in front of you, I'm not gonna, it's not going to be hard to say no to hot dog, friends. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus, to follow the way of Christ and not the way of this world. It is not hard when you eclipse the sun. And so some of you are doing that. Every day of your life, you're doing that and you are walking freely. His commandments are light. They're not a burden. But for some of you, Christ's commandments might be a burden this morning. It might be tough to live the Christian life. 
is because you might be doing it out of duty, because you have to instead of delight, because you get to. And so, again, if you are living like that, look to Jesus, this good shepherd that we studied this morning. Look how kind and generous he is. He bought you with his own blood. He set you apart for himself. And so Jesus ultimately must be the only glory taker in your life. And so what are you going to do as a result of what you heard about Jesus this morning? May you experience this abundant life in God's economy. And may God help us to continue to uneclipse the sun and behold his beauty and his glory as we enter as a church into this new year. Excited to see what God has more in store through his faithfulness and his goodness and his kindness as he leads specifically Gateway Bible Church, as he leads our individual families, as he leads us individually. May as he, we follow him, the more that we follow him and in his footsteps, the greater unity that we will have among one another. Father, we thank you for your words of life. We thank you that you... gave your only son, that those who believe in him would have life. What glory, what beauty, what majesty. How can we not be in awe of what you have done for us? Father, we thank you that that you are so kind and generous. Jesus, we are grateful to you that you are patient with us we thank you that uh, you, you go before us and you call us and you guide us. And really, we just pray this morning. First, we just ask for forgiveness, Lord. Father, forgive us of, of the times when we did not follow your guidance, the guidance of your son, where we, where we didn't follow your son as the good shepherd, where we decided to do things on our own or we continue to. Help us to repent of that. Help us to not live a self-sufficient life, but a life that is sufficient in you. And second, we just ask, would you direct our our gaze to Christ, the good shepherd? May we continue to see just the riches of of our inheritance in the saints. We lean on you, and, and we pray these things for your glory's sake and for our joy. Amen.